Hello, everybody. Welcome to a fresh episode of NBRI New Business and Retail Insights from the Center for Retail Studies at Mays Business School, Texas A&M University. I'm your host, Venki Shankar, Director of Research and Coleman Chair, Professor of Marketing. It is my pleasure to welcome our guest today, Dr. Anindya Ghosh, the Heinz Real Chair, Professor of Business at New York University Stern School of Business. He also holds a joint appointment at IOMS and marketing departments there. He's a director of the Masters of Business Analytics programs at Stern. He is a Stern faculty scholar with an MBA scholarship called the Ghosh Scholarship, named after him. He's been a visiting professor at the Wharton School of Business. In 2014, he was named by Poets and Quants as one of the top 40 professors under 40. And he's had numerous recognitions uh, including uh, the top 200 thought leaders in big data business analytics. Uh, he's also been recognized as Thinkers 50 as one of the top 30 management thinkers globally. Uh, he has a best-selling publication called TAP, Unlocking the Mobile Economy. It has won multiple awards. Uh, it's published extensively, given numerous talks, world over, consulted with an array of companies. Uh, Anindya has a PhD in information systems from the Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome Anindya to this episode of NBRI. I'm delighted you could join us for this conversation. How are you uh, in this very challenging times? Uh, well, first of all, thank you. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to chat with you and looking forward to today's conversation as well. Um, Regarding COVID, yeah, you know, uh, trying to figure out what this new normal is like. Um, but every day or every week maybe brings its own set of nuanced challenges. So we'll see. Great. Uh, I noticed that you've been as active as ever working throughout this pandemic too, <laughs> uh, because you're, you're very good in digital and I guess you're very good in working on issues relating to digital. Uh, I briefly introduced you, but how would you describe yourself in maybe five words or, or you know, maybe less? Uh, well, I think I would start by my passion. My biggest passion is mountaineering. So maybe uh, not probably what you were thinking of, but <laughs> well, you know, start. you're always scaling new heights, right? So <laughs> in this case, literally, uh, uh, yeah. you know. Um, look, I, I think I um, I love the four-word slogan from you know steve jobs uh he says stay hungry stay foolish I, I think for me that's been a driving mantra of my life um i try not to get complacent about complacent about anything and i'm always looking out for uh you know just getting more information knowledge and, and then passing it on back to society which you know people like you and i uh it comes as part of the job description but it's also tremendously gratifying right Great. Yeah, I mean, you use some very interesting terms, uh, and I completely agree with you knowing uh, uh, what I know about you. Uh, tell us, give us a brief glimpse of your research journey. Where did you start and how have you moved along? Is there any pivoting points in your journey? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I started my PhD at Carnegie Mellon, and uh, it was a four-year process. Uh, you know, um, I had the good fortune of having a great set of advisors and committee members. Um, I was always, you know, curious about, uh, in those days, the world of e-commerce and especially how, you know, internet marketplaces like the Amazon 
platforms, how that was affecting consumer behavior. Some of that was influenced by my uh, non-academic prior industry experience working in IBM and you know HCL Hewlett-Packard and these companies. Um, so I think my PhD was really focused on that. Uh, my early career at NYU was then uh, primarily influenced by my sort of exposure to what was happening with search engine marketing, and uh, you know increasingly with this notion of uh, social media platforms, user-generated content. Uh, one of the things that we realized early on was while there had been a, a lot of work with what we call numeric or structured data from social media platforms, like think of online ratings, right? Uh, there hadn't been any work looking at associating the economics of the textual content of the social media platform with some outcomes, whether it's social outcomes or economic outcomes. So my co-authors and I sort of took a deep dive in that space. Um, and you know, like like I said, the thing that really drives my research agenda is uh, what's the newest, the most nascent disruptive phenomena that I'm observing, and how do I get my hands on a data set from this new nascent disruptive phenomena, and and then sort of start my research project. So that obviously involves a lot of conversations with companies. Um, and I personally am a big fan of doing what we call, you know, relevant research, meaning that uh, it's not as gratifying to simply publish a paper and not do something about it. I, I really feel happiest when I can take my research and apply it directly into practice, whether it's the company or organization and so on. So um, I think, you know, that would probably summarize my uh, trajectory. Um, more recently, it's taken it's been influenced significantly by mobile, um, and then you're probably aware of some of the work that I've done there, and happy to talk more about that as well. Oh, very nice. That's a very good introduction to your research, and I'm sure I'm going to peel the onions uh, uh, layers, sure. uh, layer by layer. Uh, tell, tell us something about what is fascinating you more about these nascent disruptive behaviors that you see here. What are some of the things that really uh, jumps at you? Is it blockchain? Yeah. Is, it, is it mobile, AR, VR, whatever it is uh, that is really fascinating you? Tell us something about what. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's a bunch of new things. Uh, well, see, smartphones have been around now for almost 12 years, right? The first Apple iPhone came around 2007, 2008, but it has significantly altered consumer behavior in ways that we had not anticipated. But it's also, uh, you know, uh, had not, not much of an impact on certain other behaviors. Um, so, so mobile definitely fascinates me and the core research agenda I had over the last decade or so was identifying the forces that would shape this mobile economy, right? This is a $3 trillion economy as of last year. That's only 4% of the world's GDP, which means it's only going to increase from here onwards. Right. And I've always been curious about, you know, what these additional forces are. Um, additional as in going beyond simple location. So, you know, every brand and marketer worth the salt knows about location-based targeting, but, but there's a lot more to smartphone data and a lot more that can be done beyond location. And in the book that I wrote and in my own research, as well as the research for our fellow, you know, academic, academics in the community, we've collectively identified eight other forces, you know, that can shape this mobile economy. So definitely mobile is of high interest. Um, I've always been interested in ad tech and martech, you know, advertising technology and marketing technology, and now increasingly the confluence of the two, 
what we call MAC tech, right? So marketing and ad tech combined. Yeah. Um, there, um, in addition to my own research, I've been heavily involved with a number of organizations around the world in sometimes advising them, sometimes doing some much more hands-on work on, you know, deploying like machine learning models or econometric models to, um, you know, uh, get them more bang for the buck. Um, another area of interest has been this notion of online offline, uh, in a combining a consumer's data from both the online and offline world. Uh, there we have a number of projects where we're trying to ascertain the benefit of doing, you know, incremental impact of combining somebody's online and offline data. Uh, another area of the high interest to me is voice-based AI, so like the Alexa-like applications. Um, Smart speakers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've been working with like Alibaba now to uh, evaluate the impact of, you know, these, these things. So um, really, I mean, I, as you can imagine, uh, like I said, I think something that's nascent and disruptive is what really drives my academic uh, curiosity. Excellent. So tell us something about what are you finding uh, with some of these? Let's say, take the smart speakers, for example. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the key takeaways there? that uh, let's say managers should know, students of digital uh, business should know, uh, or even budding entrepreneurs or current entrepreneurs. Um, so share us some right. nice uh, nuggets of, uh, you know, some pearls yeah, sure. of wisdom over there. Um, so and I think first and foremost, clearly we, we see a non-trivial positive impact of the adoption of, you know, the, the smart Alexa-like devices. Meaning what? Meaning that people who adopt these devices tend to spend more money and tend to spend more money more frequently. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, when you, when you peel that off, there are some interesting complementarities and substitutions. You know, there's some complementarity between the adoption of an Alexa-like device and your own smartphone usage. Uh, there's some substitution between that and like, the desktop usage. Um, but there's also, you know, we found a lot of interesting insights across categories, like certain categories, uh, you know, tend to be, I guess, uh, research more or, or uh, use more when it comes to Alexa, okay, or, or the equivalent of Alexa. Um, what are those to, categories? Uh, give me some examples. Oh, uh, everyday household appliances, you know, for okay. instance, like, oh, Alexa, find me the cheapest battery for my TV remote. Okay. okay, something like that, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that itself has an interesting implication for branding. So one of the things that we, we are beginning to see is that there's going to be some detrimental effect of these voice-based AI devices on the value of a brand. Right. Because the nature of the consumer search process is very different when they're talking to a device, you know? Um, so not, you know, a lot of people are not searching using brand, the name of yeah. the brand. Yeah, yeah, they're just doing a generic search. Right. Well, it's very interesting you mentioned that there's some substitution and complementarity effects. Uh, if you could uh, unpack it a little bit more for us and then say, right. uh, which categories are we seeing substitution, which categories we're seeing complementarities, and also to speak to us uh, about how is uh, the smart speaker uh, different from just using a mobile device, for example. You could use a Siri, for example, rather than an Alexa. And uh, is there any added uh, benefits to the consumer? Does it disrupt the consumer buying process? So unpack a little for us, please. 
Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the things that happens with these Alexa-like devices is many people, um, you know, become like it becomes a trusted shopping partner, so to speak. It's, right. it's almost like part of the family. So they're, they're very attached to it. Okay. Now, when you're really attached to it and because it's a very convenient process for the most part, right, it simply increases the frequency with which you interact with the device. Right. Now, yes, some people interact with the device, so, you know, put their TV on or put their music system on, but a lot of them are just using that to shop, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things we see is that it has a positive effect on, you know, everyday household, you know, groceries or household, you know, relatively inexpensive items that doesn't require a tremendous amount of search. Uh, any re- lots of products where you repeat buy, right? It's very convenient to do this on a voice device. Um, when it comes to the, the, you know, the interaction with other devices, so in, a, in a separate paper, we had worked with um, Alibaba, which is one of their you know, largest e-commerce platforms, and we had shown that uh, smartphones have a positive synergistic effect with tablets, right. whereas tablets have a, a, a sort of a negative substitution effect with desktop. Desktop, okay. right. Yeah, I remember that study. Right. Uh, it was with, you know, Jason Chan and Sankil Han was published in London Science. And so... That was, you know, one of the earliest studies that started to look at these inter- the effects of devices on each other because we were looking at the same set of people. And again, I think you're seeing the same kind of effects with, you know, these Alexa-like devices. So if you're on a smartphone, the people who use both smartphone and Alexa are more likely to shop and more likely to shop more frequently and in higher amounts. Uh, but with respect to those people who have a desktop and an Alexa, uh, they will see some substitutive effects. Okay, that's good to know the device substitution. And I, I think you are uh, really uh, pioneering research in that direction. I, and I hope that we can have more takeaways from these kind of research. But tell us a little bit about what is it that's making people spend more on a smart speaker, using a smart speaker? Is it just the impulsivity or is it the, uh, the conversational interface? You get chatty yeah. and then that somehow... Um, makes you spend, uh, look for categories that you didn't look for more? Or does the smart speaker recommend something that you hadn't thought about and that sort propels you to buy more? What is happening here? Yeah, so, you know, we, we are doing a follow-up study that will involve some surveys of these after consumers okay. and asking these kind of questions. So now anecdotally, I can tell you that it's not so much about the smart speaker, you know, recommending products of its own. Yes, some of these devices do that, but they're very rudimentary yet. I think what is really happening is the, some of the factors you mentioned earlier. Impulse buying, number one. More convenience, number two, brought from familiarity, for example. And, and the effects of both impulse buying and familiarity tend to be higher for products where you buy repeatedly. Like think about toilet paper or think about right. you know, your groceries. Right. Um, it, it, I think at the end of the day, it is just another device that, in a non-trivial fashion reduces your search cost or any friction between you and the outside world, right? So does it mean that in terms of implication, a smart speaker is not as smart as it is intended to be? Because it seems that most of these decisions are, uh, I call it outsourcing uh, of, you know, routine, mundane decision-making to a Mm -hmm. a, uh, device like smart speaker. And it's simply doing the chore of reordering for you. Or is it something more that we are missing? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I would say it's really a very highly personalized butler, okay, or, right. or a concierge, okay? Right. It is doing exactly what you want it to do. 
That said, look, there are companies who already like looking at merging your online browsing or mobile browsing and search data or transaction data with the queries that you put forward for Alexa or something similar. And so the core goal is, you know, merging multiple data silos that tell a lot about you. On, its, on their own, they are informative, but when you merge them, right, you merge your internet browsing and search and transaction data with your mobile browsing and search and transaction data with your Alexa query data and potentially also with your offline transaction data, right? That is massive, right? That's a minefield so, of data to analyze, right? Exactly. And, and so we have, uh, you know, we have a separate working paper where we're actually evaluating and quantifying the incremental effect that each of these channels bring to the predictive power of these algorithms. So it's more right. of a machine learning predictive paper, uh, but the core goal is to help retailers figure out, like, you know, how much more bang for the buck can you get by merging somebody's internet and mobile data with their offline data. That's excellent, you know, because uh, retailers are very keen to better understand consumer behavior. Uh, right. And you mentioned uh, this is this looks like very difficult to collect the data in the first place. How do retailers manage to collect this data to be able to even do this? Yeah, so you know, the mobile phone is a glue between the online and offline world. So you know, if I have to recommend this, I advise a bunch of you know retail organizations. The first thing I'll tell them is. Make sure you have a very strong mobile presence, right? Okay. Even if you're a purely offline brand. Look, if you're a DTC brand, clearly you're strong on the internet, so you're almost likely to have a strong mobile presence too. But if you've traditionally been offline and you're now figuring out how to set up a dual channel shop, right? Your, your mobile phone is, is, is the most powerful instrument uh, for the consumer, for you to get to your consumers, meaning right. that right, you have a mobile yeah. app and you know, be responsive design on your website and so on. But I think beyond that, and you know, you've yourself done a lot of work in this space. So uh, you know, uh, you know, it's like I'm preaching to the choir here. But collectively, you and I can tell the retail audience that the integration of data comes from the mobile phone because your mobile phone taps your offline data as well as your online data, right? Correct. Yeah. And so I think that's the first and foremost. Well, that's that's a very good insight talk. and very good takeaway for the retailers. And you know, I'm like you, curious. Uh, I. Uh, I want to know more about things I don't know. So I guess since you've uh, really uh, researched on a lot, it's good to pick your brains on that. And uh, on that note, you talk about data, uh, you know, we talk about the, and you talk about the four V's of data, and I would probably add mm -hmm. a four V. The four V's being volume, um, velocity, uh, veracity, which you talk about integrity and uh, mm -hmm. variety. Uh, I would add a fifth V with value. Because uh, mm -hmm. not all of the data are valuable, but sure. you have a paper which uh, I thought was very interesting. Is that you know, uh, which is to speaking to the veracity of data, how mm -hmm. accurate the data should be. Tell us something about that research and what should, uh, what are some of the key takeaways on that? Yeah, so this you know that project sort of started um, in my association with Lucidity. Uh, it's one of the largest mobile, uh, largest ad tech companies in the world that uses blockchain to ascertain the veracity of data. So I sit on the advisory board and you know, we have been having a lot of conversations about using some of the data from their clients to, to test you know, the, the value of this data, right? So here's what's going on. So um, when it comes to the ad tech world, you know, this world of digital advertising, 
um, anywhere from 20 to 25% of the ads on the internet or on the mobile devices are, are fraud or susceptible fraud. to yeah, fraud. Remember. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's bot fraud, you know, bots, bots masquerading as human beings, there's click fraud, there's domain spoofing, you know, there's mm -hmm. impression fraud, all kinds of uh, funky business going on. And up until recently, it was very difficult for, you know, the ecosystem to ascertain the level of fraud. I mean, everybody knew that this fraud existed, but you just couldn't do much about it. Now, these companies like Lucidity and there's a couple of others as well, they are using blockchain-based mechanisms to ascertain fraud uh, and then sort of, you know, tease it out and beat it out. And uh, they've already had some really good success uh, case study stories with a bunch of clients. So there's a project that I'm very well aware of that involves collaboration with Toyota. So Lucidity was the ad tech vendor collaborating with Toyota, which is the brand, with Sachi and Sachi, which is the agency, and with AT&T, which is the ad tech platform with the ad exchange and the DSP and the SSP. And, um, you know, they ran over like 10 million ad impressions for display ads for Toyota's brand. And they were able to, if I remember correctly, um, about there was a 20% improvement in the ROI, increasing the ROI, but eliminating this kind of fraud. Okay. Um, so, you know, like, and that's one of several such case studies Elicity has been part of. And that's motivating my own research in this space. I want to continue to quantify the value that organizations get from, you know, using blockchain to ascertain fraud in this ad tech market space. That's great. And for the viewers and listeners, can you just give a quick overview of what is blockchain uh, so that, uh, you know, it's not very uh, technical? Yeah, and, and, and you know, it's, it's hard with, to explain that without being technical, but just think of this as a decentralized database, right? So right. it's a decentralized database that uh, the simpler way to describe that is where nobody can make changes in the content of the database without somebody not knowing about it. Yeah. Right. There's, so so you, it's a transparent ledger of accounts, decentralized right. way. So yeah. to, just to add to that, and, and you articulated very nicely using your research with Lucidity and Toyota, how blockchain can prevent ad fraud or uh, sure. any types of uh, digital fraud. Uh, one of the other areas where um, blockchain is supposed to make a disruption is also disintermediation. For example, Uber drivers uh, have to depend on the Uber platform to connect with the consumers. So there has been one uh, set of thinking that if blockchain really becomes mainstream, then it could severely disrupt and disintermediate a lot of uh, tech companies, mainly platform companies, and bring um, buyers and sellers together. What, what is your view on that? I mean, I think there's the, the, the some truth to that. There's some elements of that system where this might happen. I'm not entirely convinced, you know, that this will be the kind of disruption or disintermediation that others might believe. So, for instance, think about uh, one, one aspect of marketplaces, which is consumer data, right? right. So consumers, you know, we are, uh, you know, I've researched this now over 10 years that consumers are very willing to share their data with brands in return for some very concrete benefits, right? Right. Now, despite what mainstream media might say that, you know, people are uh, supremely concerned about privacy concerns and they don't want to engage in that relationship, the reality is it's not true, right? So, yeah, there is a disconnect between what people say and what they want to do. Okay? Right. Now, one of the 
the normal sort of, uh, or one of the common, I guess, inferences is that there should be a marketplace where consumers should be able to go and exchange their data with companies, right? Because I want and they should be able to own the data too, right? To yeah. So some some people believe that data is a asset; they should be able to own it. Um, or if they own it, that's why they should be able to exchange it, just like you would exchange an, an old house or a car, right? Um, I think there's been a lot of talk about setting up a marketplace where this sort of transparency will enable buyers and sellers to negotiate prices directly. So consumers can come directly to a marketplace and you know, put up their data for sharing or for selling and brands can then bid for it. Right. Now that's the kind of marketplace that I think can emerge facilitated by blockchain because blockchain is a clear transparent pipe that you know, provides that crystal clear transparency on both sides and without the risk of you know, data manipulation or alteration mutation, right? right. Um, so I think that's an example where it's a, it's a tiny slice of this ecosystem but it's an important slice. So I think that's the kind of disruption that could happen with blockchain. I'm not so sure, you know, that blockchain will actually disintermediate, uh, you know, companies or platforms on a larger scale beyond this. Certainly, you know, not in the foreseeable okay. future. So. Okay, I think, let, let me pause the recording. Uh, the, the quality, uh, Anindya, are you there? Yeah. yeah, I'm there, yeah. So, uh, that's very well uh, put forward on India about this possibility of the new market exchange of people's data. Uh, on that note, uh, you have a paper recently tying this with the COVID virus and pandemic mm -hmm. where you research people's willingness to share information. Uh, right. So the privacy for the greater good, uh, right. where I found it fascinating that people are more and more people are willing to now share data uh, for common good. And that is, uh, yeah. if my data can be useful to, to prevent or minimize COVID um, adverse consequences, then people are willing. And tell us something about it. Particularly, I was struck by the finding that uh, regardless of which party you belong to, Republican or Democratic, uh, you, people tend to have the same opinion about sharing privacy. Tell us something about your result there. Sure, sure. You know, so this project was, it, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting sort of cross uh, university project. My co-authors are from Carnegie Mellon, NYU and Virginia, University of Virginia. Right. So what motivated this was, you know, in the early days of March, I had been following, you know, this notion of contact tracing. Right. Uh, as COVID spread all over the world, we saw the emergence of this notion of contact tracing, first come from Asia and then Europe, right? Telecom providers were uh, working with regulators and government officials to figure out how to quarantine people, where were people not socially distancing and so on. By, by March, when most of us here in the US became aware of this notion of contact tracing and COVID obviously, uh, there was this massive concern because mainstream media, the New York Times and Fox, both sides of the aisle, were constantly talking about government surveillance, privacy violations, you know, data concerns and this sort of stuff. And um, we thought, you know, as a team, we thought that it's going to be worth investigating how do people react to this notion of, you know, privacy concerns or, or government surveillance in, the, in a healthcare pandemic, in a crisis, right? Now look, in a purely commercial marketing setting, we had shown earlier that lots of people are willing to share the data, but 
in return for something concrete, like an economic discount. Benefit, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Now, in this case, in, in the pandemic, there's, there's probably no immediate, you know, uh, or direct... Uh, individual benefit, gain, right? yeah. yeah. Individual gain. So it's more of a collective social Good, welfare yeah. enhancing act. So our question here was, you know, um, how did America react? And, and like you said, you know, one of the most fascinating things we found was that even though there are some differences across Democratic cities and Republican cities, you know, we looked at like 20 cities, 10 Republican, 10 Democratic cities. On the whole, the country was very united in wanting to share more data, okay, uh, location data, knowing fully well that this is, you know, uh, going to be like social welfare enhancing. There's more of a collective good over here. So, I mean, look, as a country, we, we didn't get a lot of things right about COVID, right? There's a lot of things that went wrong, but this was very heartening to see that, you know, there, there's still some elements in the society where we believe that we can do better by coming together as a collective unit. And our paper is the first one to show that when it comes to sharing location data, uh, and this can come at a cost, right? This can come at a cost of potential privacy or surveillance, Yet people were mostly united. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's a very interesting and heartening uh, finding. Uh, right. On that same note, uh, we know that privacy regulations are being stepped up. We know that GDPR, uh, which mm -hmm. uh, originates in Europe, and CCPA, which is California Consumer Protection Act, um, uh, these are all enhancing the privacy uh, protection for and from a consumer point of view, do you think that these are going to be uh, accelerating in terms of other states implementing it, the government coming down with more protections? Or where do you think, which direction is this headed? And how should uh, technology companies and marketers, platform companies, how should they approach it uh, in formulating the strategy going forward? Yeah, so, you know, that's a very interesting topic. And I would say that, you know, at the, at the outset, that this is still a work in progress. And, mm -hmm. and the reason I say that is because, look, uh, it's been two years since GDPR has been effectively out, May of 2018, right? Right. A little more than two years now. Um, I think, you know, there's been mixed evidence about the true impact of GDPR. Uh, that, you know, there's, there's some marketing scholars like Garrett Johnson whose work is showing that. In fact, there is some non-trivial negative detrimental effects of GDPR, okay? Um, and I think, you know, it really depends on who you ask, like what has been the true effect of these privacy policies. So here's what we know. What we know is consumers, okay, the majority of consumers in many demographics are willing to partake in this trust-based relationship with companies, okay, where there's some give and take, okay? My own research has shown this numerous times even though they might save their concern about privacy, but when the benefits are very concrete, they are willing to share with the data. I think what we have to keep in mind are, while some regulations are good and useful, it should not be uh, you know, used to handicap you know, this process where both parties are willing to come together and formulate you know, a reciprocity-based relationship. And that's why I say it's work in progress. I, I don't think, you know, we have seen the final version of any of these policies yet uh, because the evidence is very mixed. There, there's benefits to some companies. There's a lot of harm to some others. And, and same goes for consumers. Uh, I think this is, you know, clearly 
Um, and I, I do, outside of my research, you know, I do a lot of you know, consulting on the litigation front that involves, you know, dealing with some of these issues. So at least I can say that uh, this is going to be a while before we actually are able to figure out what is this optimal balance between not having too much regulation uh, and yet, you know, protecting consumers and keeping their data safe. Oh, that's a nice way of uh, looking at it. Uh, but on the same note, let me just juxtapose this with your smart speakers, because there, there is a, a fear or uh, right or wrong that um, the big brother is watching you with smart speakers, mm -hmm. right? Um, that, uh, that is also an intrusion or erosion into people's privacy. Uh, what, where is the research on this and uh, what are some of the uh, issues going forward on, in this domain? Um, yeah, so look, uh, the companies we've been working with, you know, in this case, Alibaba and their equivalent of the Alexa, um, uh, it's called a Kimol Genie. Uh, you know, look, they, uh, like, like all co big companies, they're very cognizant of their responsibilities. You know, with, with big data comes big power, with big power comes big responsibility, right? Like the Spider-Man code, right? Right. So, um, you know, I, one of the things I write in my book is there is, you know, very little incentive for an organization, a, a, a large established organization to consciously and willingly violate your privacy. Okay? There's very little incentive because there's very little upside to that. This is not a, it is not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? So they realize fully that, you know, while it may be tempting to get some short-term games by maybe, you know, trying to abuse your data, I have not seen any logical evidence that this happens because, look, like I said, you know, the downside is a lot more than the upside. Okay? Now, what does happen is we live in a world where there's an adversarial system. So large established organizations are constantly being attacked by you know, these hackers and the security breaches. Okay? So these bad actors are always out there trying to get them, you know, uh, break the system. At the same time, these organizations are putting in a tremendous amount of resources to protect our data. And this is something that's not adequately reported, I feel, in, in the mainstream media, you know. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, you know, a few select companies get isolated and attack more. But I think, you know, we have to be really neutral about this conversation, which means that, you know, walking the middle path and figuring out what is truly going on. What is truly going on is bad actors, the hackers, breachers, they're always trying to penetrate. And they might be successful one out of a hundred times, but that one time, the 99 times that they tried and failed because the organizations put in tremendous resources to prevent that, that is never reported, right? The only thing that catches the attention is that one time somebody got through. Okay, and, so I think you, you're yeah. really bringing to light some of the efforts made by organizations to protect the data. Let me also yeah. juxtapose the other topic we discussed, which is mainly uh, the issue of blockchain. What do you think? Um, do you think blockchain could ensure uh, prevention from hack attacks? Uh, is that another reason why we should adopt blockchain in a white? Yeah, way? you know, I, look, I, I have seen, here's what I, I can tell you. I've seen evidence that blockchain can help with transparency, right. okay? Uh, it can help with enabling what we call, you know, the non-adulteration of data because if somebody tries to, you know, uh, make any changes, they get caught, right? 
Um, I feel like between this the transparency and the and the non-adulteration, the non-mutation, it is promising. Um, I can see some promise there for using blockchain to enhance our privacy. Um, but I am yet to see an actual implementation of this. You know, I, uh, despite all the other industry engagements where I'm deeply involved in some of these activities, I think it is potential. That's probably the best I can say. There's potential, yet we have not seen any large-scale implementation. Implementation. So yeah, the jury's still out on that. That's good to I think know. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so well, so far it's been very fascinating talking to you all about these great technical issues, but I wanted uh, to know a little bit more about you uh, yeah. outside do research and uh, consulting and speaking. Um, you mentioned mountaineering. What are some of the mm -hmm. other things that you do for fun? Uh, well, uh, so let, let me start by mountaineering maybe, you know, because I think that is, uh, to me, that is the biggest, the most funnest, if there's a word like that, is the funnest thing. Um, I thought there was a there was a considerable period of my time where I thought that is my true calling in life, meaning that I'll become one of these mountain guides, you know, mountaineering guides. Sherpa. Right? And uh, yeah, the, the equivalent of you know the Indian American equivalent right. of a Sherpa, right. and I'll essentially guide you know these rich corporate clients on team building institutions, and, you know, other kind of team building campaigns, and happily survive thereafter. And, um, uh, well, it turns out that um, I ended up pursuing this more as a hobby, less as a profession, right? Okay. Um, and, and since then, you know, I've climbed in five continents. Uh, my favorite part of the world outside of the Himalayas uh, is South America. So I've done a lot of climbing in the Andes, Andes yeah. in South America. And, um, you know, um, there are also parts of the U.S. where I'd, I'd love to keep going back, Alaska or, or you know, the Pacific Northwest, Colorado, etc. Outside of pure technical climbing, so this is all, you know, with, with uh, ice axes and crampons and ropes and caravan. And outside of that, the second fun thing I would say is, you know, is one, something very similar, which is trekking or hiking, right? Right. So here I take my So you're more of an outdoor person and uh, oh, you love yeah, the outdoors, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not the best person to live in New York City, that I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, the one good thing is that, you know, the good news is that uh, this is uh, mountain climbing is a good activity for social distancing, right? Exactly. <laughs> You're far away from a lot of people, exactly. but at the same time, you have to travel to those peaks, which is not possible right now. So uh, right. again, there is a trade-off. So uh, hopefully, you know, you get to go and experience more of this. Uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, you see as the biggest future uh, that's coming down the pike in five to twenty years, give or take. Uh, as many years in between, uh, in terms of tech development. So you mentioned ad tech, martech, mad tech, mm -hmm. uh, business in general, retailing. Uh, what are your, what does your crystal ball say for the next uh, coming five to 25 years? Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, what COVID has taught us, taught us is that work from, is, work from home is a lot easier than we initially thought. Right. And the productivity gains from work from home in many cases can actually very easily compensate for some of the other losses in like you know, socializing, for instance. Okay, so we at least see that you know, there are many companies like Twitter and parts of other tech companies that have said, we are not going to ever go back to physical offices okay, yeah, yeah. For, for large parts of our population. Okay. Now, specifically within the tech world, I am most excited about 5G 
and okay. essentially what we call autonomous, you know, vehicles, so self-driving cars and 5G. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, on their own, they're they're powerful, but the combination of the two is even more powerful. So, see, here's here's uh, think about this, right? Like, why is a Google or a Baidu, all these companies, you know, why are they so excited about self-driving cars? Because what would people do once they're inside a self-driving car, right? They're going to open up the devices, they're going to start browsing. So it's another way to monetize that behavior. And because self-driving cars might be traveling at, you know, high speed, depending on the part of the country, 5G is always better than 4G or 3G. Okay. Um, so very little latency and people can instantaneously interact, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think a natural outcome of 5G is more VR and more AR, right? So again, when people have some downtime, whether it's at home or an office or in their self-driving car, they're going to try to get more of these experiential, you know, uh, effects, right? So I think we'll start to see more creative uses of VR and AR. And again, 5G will enhance that. Um, I think, you know, these two are, are obviously like the, the immediate few years. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to predict beyond a certain time frame. I know people keep talking about singularity, that day right. where <laughs> computers become smarter than human beings. I think we are far, far away from that, uh, easily, you know, two, three decades away from all of that. Good. But I think I'm like that. You're looking at the near term more than the far term. Uh, don't jump yeah. ahead of time. Uh, yeah. That's great. Uh, this is very, very valuable. Uh, and lastly, what would be some of your advice to uh, students, participants, uh, people in the space of learning? Um, how can they best uh, enhance their skills and move forward uh, in a post-pandemic world? Because you're a digital expert and you're doing so much in this space. Right. I think, you know, one of the things that COVID has exposed to us is that we can now learn um, a lot more like sitting at home or sitting in our, wherever we are, right? Because we have access to the world's best minds and experts. Right. Everybody's just one Zoom call away. Right. Um, there's been an explosion of, you know, um, online events, you know, whether it's top leader events or webinars or even courses. So I would say, look, whatever your um, you know, interests or passions are, identify some leaders in that space because they are now much more likely to be disseminating their content online, right? Earlier, you didn't have access to that because you know, they'd be speaking at these $1,000 ticket price events. And, and, now it's know, all coming to you almost free, right? <laughs> it's all free now, right? Like, you know, you, people like you and I, we would not be charging a speaking admin fee for doing an online event. We just have to do it, right? Um, I think that's probably, you know, the, the biggest benefit of this, right? Everybody is one click away. And so, you know, find the right person, the right content, and, and just, you know, identify that and go full steam ahead. Um, also, I think it's very important to be adaptable now more so than ever, because until and unless, you know, we have whether it's herd immunity or a vaccine, we really don't, we can't predict beyond a few maybe days or weeks, right? Um, and so, you know, improvise constantly and, and be more flexible about the various options for you. Um, I think it's very important to keep an eye out on jobs and careers. One of the things, you know, we, we always say is that every, you know, um, like every few years, something major will happen, right? So we've seen already the effect of data science and business analytics on, on jobs and careers. 
And that's not going to go away. That's just going to stay. Now, but within that, certain industries are probably going to get far more disrupted. So consider telehealth or healthcare, okay? Right. Um, I predict significant disruptions in healthcare because of COVID, because of the effect of telehealth. Right. Um, so look for companies that are disrupting the telehealth space. You know, they may be companies you've never heard of, but two years from now, everybody will be talking about these companies. So there will be some uh, zooms in that space too, right? Uh, absolutely, absolutely, uh, yes, yeah. So be, uh, again, I want to close out by saying that this has been a fascinating conversation. All of it goes back to what you said before that describes you, stay hungry, stay foolish. So would you echo right. that kind of advice to uh, students, participants, e-learners, and so on, right? Absolutely, Because essentially absolutely. that's what you're trying to imply here, right? Absolutely. Like, you know, keep your eyes and ears open for a nonstop, constant flurry of, you know, knowledge. Right. And, um, you know, this is a lot more accessible today than it was before. Wonderful. On that note, I want to take another opportunity to thank you again, Anandia. It's been wonderful discussing a wide range mm -hmm. of issues with you. And thank you for your time. I know how busy you are as a researcher, teacher, consultant speaker, litigation expert, and thank you so much for your time today. And I uh, wish you good luck in the rest of research and other initiatives. Thank you for having me, Venki. Always a pleasure to chat with you.